0: It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the media buzz meter with Howard Kurtz. Breaking news. Man, I love breaking news. Hunter Biden agreeing to testify before the House GOP Oversight Committee, led by Jim Comer. Now, this didn't happen in a vacuum, because you might say to yourself, why is the president's son going to go there where the Republicans wield the gavel and get himself beat up over all of the related investigations? Well, I think it's part of a larger strategy, clearly. He's been much more aggressive, he and his lawyer, putting out statements defending himself. And I think this is also being coordinated, maybe too strong a word, but no, I think coordinated with the president's re-election effort. And Hunter probably figures, well, look, they'll come up with all these theories and I'll give my side, I'll get my version out. And people won't have to keep reading these stories according to sources. Now, obviously, his version will be attacked, but, you know, that's politics. I'm going to temporarily stick with my approach of putting some of the lighter and funnier stuff at the end of the podcast. No, not to make sure you listen till the end. I hope you do. But just because in this war environment, it seems I should get to that right away. And so, story number one... We seem to be at a turning point in this Mid-East conflict. As you undoubtedly know, today and tomorrow are the days of Hamas agreeing to release 10 more hostages each day in exchange for prolonging the pause in military action. But it sometimes can be hard to restart a war after you have put it on pause. And there's no question that these extra days, you know, give this terrorist group, I'm sure this has been going on during the earlier four days, a chance to reposition its military, set up its rockets, and do other things for the inevitable resumption of the war. But is it inevitable? Um, I don't know. I think... The longer this goes on, I think it's clearly to Israel's disadvantage, except, and yet there are clearly domestic political benefits, and perhaps world benefits, to this resumption of the prisoner swap, three Palestinians for every one Israeli hostage, and yet, Leave aside how unequal that is. What Israel is doing is returning relatively low-level Palestinian prisoners who were arrested for involvement in some kind of violence, arrested and imprisoned, I should say. Well, Hamas is returning. In in yesterday's group, three-year-old twins... I have a column on this today on Fox and I and I I clicked on it this morning. And there were pictures of I think a two year old and a four year old heartbreaking. Heartbreaking that these terrorists would think it's okay, it's justifiable to seize 85-year-old grandmothers. Nine-year-old boy who we saw running um, to presumably his dad in a place where the exchanges took place. And the one American hostage released so far, four-year-old Abigail Eden, Avigail in Hebrew, um, after her parents were killed. I just don't want anyone to lose sight of the fact that a civilized society does not take babies, really. Preschoolers. And elderly people, and hold, uh, hold them as bargaining chips. But the question now is what will happen after this war? So the latest is yesterday was the fourth group of Israelis released including a 12-year-old boy and CIA Director William Burns a former ambassador to Moscow and a respected diplomat is in Qatar today. You know, Qatar is the country that has been the go-between for Israel, Gaza, and Egypt. Uh, With the hope of brokering a more expansive deal, according to sources, he's pushing for Hamas and Israel to broaden the focus of their ongoing negotiations, thus far limited to women and children, to encompass the release of men and military personnel, too. For toward that end, he wants a longer multi-day pause in the fighting. And, of course, he's pushing for the immediate release of American hostages, uh, thought by U.S. officials to be eight or nine. And by the way, in this column today, I also talk about how heartbreaking it is to see what happened in Vermont. Three Palestinian students enrolled in American schools getting together for Thanksgiving and suddenly shot by a 48-year-old man who is now uh, the chief suspect. I don't think he's been charged yet. The Burlington chief of police saying... It's being investigated as a potential hate crime. I don't want to rush to judgment, but, you know, two of them were wearing the traditional headdress. They were speaking in a mixture of English and Arabic. Just walking down the street. Let's just say I will not be shocked if it is indeed a hate crime. Um, President Biden says the New York Times could take solace in saving a single four-year-old girl, that being Abigail Idan. But the challenge he now faces is not just to free the rest of the American hostages, but to use the success to alter the trajectory of the war. This is what I was alluding to earlier. So Joe Biden was very much behind this extension, publicly welcomed it, gives all sides more breathing space, but perhaps postpones the critical question by 48 hours, what happens when this negotiated pause eventually expires, as it eventually will? Well, how many times have you heard Bibi Netanyahu say, our goal remains to destroy Hamas, to topple Hamas? But, Biden hopes to influence any fresh military action and make sure that it's more targeted and does more to avoid civilian casualties. Um, The Israelis were dropping very large bombs because that's what they had in their stockpile. And remember, thanks to the House dysfunction, there is still no U.S. military aid package for Israel or for Ukraine, for that matter, where a deadly war continues to go, continues to grind on. Biden's in a bind, said uh, former Middle East negotiator Aaron David Miller. He's tethered himself to Israel's war aims, eradicating Hamas. But in the view of the rising humanitarian uh, crisis there, he says catastrophe was the word he used, and the exponential rise in Palestinian deaths, he's looking for ways to de-escalate and eventually for an exit ramp. You know, we're all seeing these pictures now of some of the most recently released hostages reunited with their families, relatives are being interviewed, such as uh, family members of Abigail Idan. Obviously, uh, her parents not available to be interviewed since they were killed on October 7th. And they're really heartwarming pictures and you have to feel great joy for families that have just for the last month and a half been through absolute anguish with their loved ones even alive. But at the same time, this is Hamas manipulation. Manipulation of the media, manipulation of emotions. So the average person is supposed to think, well, not so bad. Look, they're negotiating, they're returning. Yeah, they're returning civilians who never should have been kidnapped in the first place. The longer the pause, the more time Hamas has to regroup. Jake Sullivan, Biden's national security advisor, said that. I can't deny, he said on ABC's This Week, Uh, Hamas gained some benefits from this deal. One of them is the ability to refit and retool inside Gaza. Another is to try to use social media and other formats to generate some propaganda out of it. But he said the trade-off was dozens of innocent people coming out of Gaza to be reunited with their families. By the way, on those three Palestinian students who were shot in Vermont, uh, the uncle of one of them said he was hosting them for Thanksgiving. He and his family fear the shooting was motivated by hate, and they were targeted because they were Arabs and they were wearing kefias. So, ironically, Biden has made progress. He's gotten the military pause he wants. He's strongly urging the Israelis, when the war undoubtedly resumes, to be more careful and more targeted to result in fewer civilian casualties. And yet, all this is hurting him in the polls. Why? Because many younger Democrats, many younger Democrats um, despise Israel and support Gaza or support Hamas. That's never been the case in the history of Israel and the Democratic Party, but it is now. Well, here's a kind of related piece. I mentioned um, yesterday that Elon Musk had gone to Israel, met with Bibi Netanyahu, talked to the president, Herzog, and, you know, was shown that Kibbutz, which was brutally and fatally attacked by the Hamas terrorists on October 7th. Well, Anne Hidalgo, the mayor of Paris, said uh, yesterday on X... And she's quitting the social media site because it's devolved into a gigantic global sewer for disinformation, hatred, anti-Semitism, racism, and a tool for destroying our democracy. She didn't name Musk, but she said this platform and its owner intentionally exacerbate tensions and conflicts. Musk has strenuously denied being anti-Semitic, though he did make a just a a game-changing error in endorsing another poster's conspiracy theory about Israelis spreading hate against white people. And meanwhile, the editor-in-chief of Haaretz, the Israeli newspaper, which is at odds with the government over what it can publish and not publish and um, could be suffering financial penalties. She said she wasn't impressed with Netanyahu embracing Elon Musk. Prime Minister's office, in fact, released, uh, released footage of two of them on a tour of that kibbutz. Netanyahu held held a live chat on Twitter where they talked about the many atrocities committed by Hamas. Israeli civilians offered Hamas against Israeli civilians, excuse me, as Musk offered his disturbed reaction to the footage of gunmen celebrating the wanton murder of innocents. Esther Solomon, uh, the editor-in-chief, calling out, Bibi for giving Musk a PR gift in the wake of amplifying an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. Now, what kind of stuff does Haratz Haratz, uh, publish? Haratz says, um, it wasn't the Gaza disengagement, but Netanyahu's policies that led to disaster. If you have a free press, that's the kind of thing that you can say in a pending column. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. All right, number two. Politico has a piece on Eric Adams. Um trying to tamp down talk about Andrew Cuomo, I hadn't realized there was this talk, running for mayor of New York City, which happens to be the job that Eric Adams holds. In an interview uh, yesterday, he dismissed talk of Cuomo going after his job, though he acknowledged that the three-term governor is considering some kind of political comeback. We talk often, Adams said. That surprises me, or even that he would acknowledge it. I don't see him running for mayor. I think he's looking at his next political move, and there's a lot of things he can look at. But I have to be ready to run New York, and that is what I'm focused on doing right now. Politico had reported that Cuomo was weighing a bit for mayor because Eric Adams has got some problems. His campaign, remember when his um, cell phones were seized? Under scrutiny by federal investigators? stemming from what, whether the campaign colluded with the Turkish government in exchange for official favors, which Mayor Adams has denied. Um, also, Cuomo has told allies he could be interested in Mayor bid, And some New Yorkers received a poll testing a variety of comeback messages for Andrew Cuomo, and I don't know how you defend against this, but I've talked yesterday about the, the special law expiring to make sexual assault claims um, against alleged assailants, even if it happened a long time ago. Well, woman came out with a lawsuit accusing Eric Adams of assaulting her in nineteen ninety three when he was a member of the n y p d Adams has denied ever meeting the woman or says he doesn't recall ever meeting her number three this is an important story, Paul Farry in The Washington Post there was a similar incident like this a couple of months ago, and let me just read you the piece because it's it's not just a piece about uh one. Newspaper in Alabama. When Don Fletcher checked the mailbox outside his newspaper's office on Main Street in late September, he found a little gold mine waiting for him. Folded up was a copy of a grand jury subpoena served on two employees of the local school system. The confidential document indicated that a criminal investigation into potential financial abuse was underway. Solid lead for a veteran reporter like Fletcher. Took a couple weeks to confirm, but Fletcher soon broke the news in the weekly Atmore News that officials were probing the Escambia County Board of Education's handling of COVID relief funds. What happened next, though, really expanded the story. Days later, the local district attorney ordered the arrest of Fletcher and his boss the publisher, Sherry Digmon. He charged both with violating a state law It prohibits the disclosure of grand jury information, a felony punishable by up to three years in prison. I, my All my warning signals went off because that's not how it works. So the reporter who's 69 years old and the publisher who's 72, taken to the county lockup you know, thrown in the slammer by police officers that they had known for years. Deputies waited till they were out of public view before handcuffing them. The arrest shocked legal scholars and press advocates who say it's a violation of the First Amendment to prosecute a newspaper for reporting the news. That is totally accurate. They argued that the DA, whose name is Stephen Billy, misapplied Alabama secrecy law which criminalizes leaks by anyone directly involved with a grand jury. Jurors, witnesses, court officials, but not news outlets that publish the information. Now, you could argue whether you agree with that or not, but it's supposed to protect the press. Now, there are times when reporters get thrown in jail, either for refusing to reveal their sources or because perhaps they've done something wrong or questionable. But American courts have consistently upheld the right to publish leaks as long as the information is obtained lawfully, such as the Supreme Court's 1971 ruling clearing the way for the New York Times and Washington Post to publish the classified Pentagon papers. In this instance, this veteran reporter, Fletcher, he opened his mailbox and there was the stuff. Now, if he had approached a grand juror, That could be considered jury tampering. But he did nothing of the sort. And then he didn't just rush into print with it. He found ways to confirm it. Now, I was tempted to leave with this. Number four. It's another George Santos story, but it may be one of the last George Santos stories. Washington Post reporting and others. That George Santos, the fabricating... Congressman from Long Island is predicting he will be expelled from Congress as early as this week following a scathing report from the House Ethics Committee which found substantial evidence that he knowingly violated ethics guidelines, House rules, and criminal laws. In a three-hour-long expletive conversation on ex-spaces, Santos declined to comment on the allegations, said his words could be used against him in the ongoing criminal case, faces 23 federal charges, fraud, money laundering, falsifying records, and aggravated identity theft. But Santos described the report as slanderous and claimed his colleagues are trying to force him out of his hide seat. Okay, you're not going to discuss the charges, but the report is slander. It's slandering you. Well, I've looked at that report. And it's highly detailed. It is not just some hit job. It has example after example after example. Oh, he accused the Ethics Committee Chairman Michael Guest of weaponizing his position and publishing a hit piece. Okay. (laughs) Santos described himself as the Republican it girl the Mary Magdalene of the United States Congress. I'm not leaving, come hell or high water. It's done when I say done. But he then says this. I know I'm going to get expelled when this expulsion resolution goes to the floor. I've done the math over and over and it doesn't look really good. Now keep in mind, the House needs a two-thirds vote to expel Santos, who would be the first member of Congress ever Uh, kicked out without having been convicted of a crime. Indicted, yes. Convicted, no. But just a few things from the uh, ethics report. Stealing money from his campaign, deceiving donors about how contributions would be used, creating fictitious loans, and engaging in fraudulent business dealings. Uh, Repeatedly used funds intended for his campaign for his personal enrichment, including spa charges... Uh, And paying down his own credit card debt. Now, doesn't that sound like a pretty detailed set of findings against a guy who got elected by making up his resume, never graduated from college, didn't work for big Wall Street firms? You probably know the story by now. Here's another little bit of politics. Uh, Donald Trump posting on his Truth Social. Whenever I sarcastically insert the name Obama for Biden as an indication that others may actually be having a very big influence in running our country, Ron sanctimonious and his failing campaign apparatus, together with the Democrats' radical left disinformation machine, go wild, saying Trump doesn't know the name of our president. Crooked, he writes, Joe Biden. He must be cognitively impaired. No, I know both names very well. Never mix them up. And know that they're destroying our country. Also, and as reported, I just took a cognitive test as part of my physical exam and aced it. Also aced, a perfect score. One taken while in the White House. Biden should take one. You know, leaving aside the uh, acing of cognitive tests, um, I actually agree that Trump was not just confusing Obama with Biden, that he's doing it deliberately to try to start a meme or a theme that Biden's not really running the country. His former boss, Barack Obama, is. I don't think there's much evidence of that. Does the president um, consult with the former president who put him on the ticket in 2008, sure. Particularly on AI, which Obama's group or foundation is, uh, has done a lot of research on Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. All right, number five. Remember when there was a big flap about politicals Jonathan Martin writing a piece about how Joe Biden can turn this around? And being tough on Biden and saying he's got serious problems, but here are some things he should hire Rahm as his uh, campaign manager, and on and on. Well, now it's The Atlantic's turn. Ron Brownstein, longtime political analyst, writing in the magazine under the headline "How Biden Might Recover." Now, some people have gotten on me because I raise questions about Donald Trump, and the media's just opened bare-knuckled assault on him and how dangerous and awful a second term would be? Well, it's just, you know, there's no pretense about it anymore. But think about it. Um, half the country, or more than half country, according to some recent polls, although the Rasmussen poll, which usually favors Republicans, has Biden at 45% approval, much higher than the 37 or 39 and 40% that I've seen in recent polls. Um, so then people write in, oh, Donald Trump, and he's a criminal, and, you know, there's no way, but he happens to be the leading Republican candidate. Yes, he's facing four criminal trials. Only one of them has any hope of being finished before next year's election. So I just compare and contrast, and I have a liberal guest on, and I have a conservative guest on, and they give their points of view. That's the job. That's what I do on Media Buzz. Okay, let's see what Ron has to say. A press release that President Joe Biden's re-election campaign issued last week offered a revealing window about how he might win a second term. While the release focused mostly on portraying Donald Trump as a threat to legal abortion, here's the most telling passage. The Biden campaign urged the political press corps, and here we're quoting, to meet the moment and responsibly inform the electorate of what their lives might look like if the leading GOP candidate for president is allowed back in the White House. So really, this is a form of what Biden has been privately fuming about. The press isn't holding Trump accountable. The press is giving Donald Trump a pass. Uh, The press isn't pointing out that he's responsible for the toppling of Roe v. Wade. Well, yeah, actually the press has pointed out all those things. So, coming back to the Brownstein piece in Atlantic, campaigns make clear it wants Americans to focus as much on what Trump would do with power as on what Biden's done in office, which isn't working for them. It's common for presidents facing public disappointment in their performance to try to shift Attention to the rival. All embattled modern first-term presidents have insisted voters will treat their re-election campaign as a choice, not a referendum. But the only other recent presidents with approval ratings around Election Day as low as Biden's are now Jimmy Carter in 1980, lost, George H.W. Bush in 1992, lost. If Biden can't make big gains, he will secure a second term only if he wins more voters who are unhappy with his performance than any other president in modern times. Uh, The silver lining is that in Trump, he has a polarizing potential opponent who might allow him to do just that. And he talked about, you know, Trump's divisive uh, policy positions, mass deportation and internment camps for undocumented immigrants, employing extremist and openly racist language that is a reference to vermin. GOP pollster Bill McIntyre said that most voters usually say when a president seeks re-election, their view about the incumbent is what most influences their decision. Well, yeah, they've got a record to run on. But when he did a recent survey with NBC, nearly three-fifths of voters said their are most important consideration in a Trump-Biden rematch, would be their views of the former president. Anyway, it does seem like... uh, I don't want to say the press is openly rooting for Biden. The press knows well this is a wounded incumbent president, despite lots of bipartisan accomplishments. But at the same time, you know, what Biden needs to do to win is becoming a storyline. And what Trump needs to do to lose is also becoming a storyline. Okay, some of the lighter items. Um, Stephen Colbert is having to take off this week from uh, CBS's Late Show. He went on Instagram to say, sorry to say I have to cancel our shows this week. I'm sure you're thinking, turkey overdose, Steve? Gravy boat capsized. Actually, I'm recovering from surgery for a ruptured appendix. Grateful to my uh, doctors and uh, to his wife and kids for putting up with me. That's uh, sorry to hear that. You've been reading about Hall and Oates, you know Daryl Hall and John Oates, long-time popular group. Except Daryl Hall's issued a restraining order against John Oates. Apparently, they've had some huge falling out. Yet, he continues to go out in concert and sing their songs. Uh, It's a shame. I don't really know why he's so ticked off at Oates, but maybe some of our intrepid investigative reporters can find out. Okay, this piece started on a website called The Futurist, making accusations about Sports Illustrated. And here's SI's response. Today, an article was published alleging that Sports Illustrated published AI-generated articles. According to our initial investigation, this is not accurate. Actually, it kind of sounds accurate when you get into it. The articles were product reviews, licensed content from an external third-party company, Advan Commerce. A number of Advan's uh, e-commerce articles ran on certain arena websites. We continually monitor our partners, and we are in the midst of a review when these allegations were raised. Advon has assured us that all the allegations were written and edited by humans. According to Advon, their writers, editors, researchers create and curate content, and follow a policy that involves using both counterplagiarism and counter uh, AI software. Blah blah blah. However, we have learned that Advon had writers use a pen or a pseudo-name in certain articles to protect author privacy, actions we strongly condemn. And we are removing the content while our internal investigation continues and have since ended the partnership. Okay, if you're ending the partnership, if you're strongly condemning, if people didn't use their real names, which is, I think, how this got started, who are these people? Don't authors generally use their real names? Except in extraordinary circumstances. I think Sports Illustrated was nailed here, and despite this glossy spin, did publish third-party content that used AI. Okay, this is so embarrassing, I can barely mention it. Education Secretary Miguel Cardona saying the other day, I think it was President Reagan who said, we're from the government, we're here to help. Well, first of all, he should know exactly what Ronald Reagan said. It's not hard to find. Second of all, it's the exact opposite of the point that President Reagan was making. The actual quote is, the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. The complete opposite of what the current education secretary was saying, Cardona, ought to get educated himself. And finally, we all know Cookie Monster And all that stuff he shoves in his mouth. Nom, 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 nom. Well, New York Times writer says, me want cookies. And me want answers. What's in that stuff? Turns out the cookies are real, sort of. They're baked at the home of Laura McLean, who's been a puppet wrangler for the Jim Henson Company for almost three decades. She started as an intern at the Sesame Workshop. The recipe roughly is, boy, this is top secret, folks. Pancake mix, puffed rice, grape nuts, and instant coffee with water in the mixture. The chocolate chips are made using hot glue sticks, especially, essentially, colored globs of glue. I think I mangled that. One more time. Essentially, colored gobs of glue. The cookies do not have oils, fats, or sugars. Those would stain Cookie Monster's reputation. They're edible, but barely. Kind of like dog treats. Well, now you know, doesn't sound like anything I'd want to eat, but Cookie Monster can't resist. Hey, thanks for uh, staying with me. Appreciate your time tuning into this podcast. And it's been so interesting that let's do it again tomorrow. See you then with more Buzzmeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music.